It's so good to see you. You know, the truth is, let's just be real for a minute. The weekend after Thanksgiving is not a record-setting attendance weekend at church, and so I'm glad you're here. If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go with me to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, and when you get to 1 Timothy, find chapter 6, and just hold that ready for a few minutes. When we began this series a few weeks ago, I told you I chose the title, A Generous Life, because I've never met anyone who didn't want to live a generous life. I really believe deep down inside of all of us is a desire to be generous. But living out that desire is often a different story for a variety of different reasons. And probably the reason that's at the top of the list is the fact that most of us, or maybe I just should say many of us, don't believe we have the capacity for generosity. We don't believe we have the capacity, the financial capacity to live a generous life. In other words, we don't think we have enough money or enough wealth to be generous. But oftentimes, that is a false assumption, regardless of your income. Uh, This past week, I was reading in August 2020, edition of Christianity Today, and there was an article in that edition that was called, Who Are the Most Generous? That was the first part of the article title, question mark, Who Are the Most Generous? And then the second part of the title was, Not Who You'd Expect. The author, a man named John Lee, basically repeated what study after study after study always shows. It's not the wealthy who are the most generous. It's the people who often have very little. We hear about the large gifts that come from wealthy people like Warren Buffett, or excuse me, Warren Buffett is, or Bill Gates, because their generosity always gets a lot of attention. But real life generosity isn't usually that glamorous. It doesn't really make all the media outlets. That same Christianity Today article cited a 2019 study by the Barna Group that identified <clears throat> the three most charitable cities in the United States of America. And here are the three most charitable cities according to that survey. Pocatello, Idaho, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Jackson, Idaho. Isn't that interesting? All the same state. So I got on my computer and did a little search on what the median income was in those three cities. And the median income for those three cities in 2019 was somewhere between $47,000 and $74,000 a year. And yet, according to that Barna study, the Christians in those cities gave on average $17,977 to charity every year. Now, I know that numbers like that can be skewed. I'm not naive about surveys and uh, things like that. But the bottom line is whether you cite information gathered from the United States government based on people's tax returns or independent surveys like the one the Barna Group did, the result is always the same. It's not the wealthy people who are the most generous. It's those who have less. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's those who have much less. And so that teaches us that the ability to live a generous life has less to do with how much money you have and more to do with how you handle it. And I guess I would also add to that more to do with where your heart is with regard to money. And so we're going to talk about money and generosity in this message series called The Generous Life one final time in 2021. And we're going to do it 
from the perspective of Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. So if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. We always love to have guests in our services. It might seem a little odd to you that we're doing this, but every week in our services, we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, and because we have such reverence and respect for God's Word, we stand together when we read it. We have a very brief passage, just three verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. You follow along as I read. This is Paul writing, and he says, "'Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment.'" Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and on the hearing of his word. Let me just tell you, we're going to do this in a real straightforward manner. This weekend, Let me just tell you that there are three specific things that stand out to me in that text. One thing for each of the verses. Three specific things, one for each verse. And so let's just study it together for a little while, line by line, as we worship together this weekend. If you'd like to take notes, I want you to write down the very first thing that stands out to me. Here it is. Paul is telling us that there is a danger associated with wealth. That's the first thing I want you to see. Paul tells us in verse 17, to be specific, of 1 Timothy chapter 6, that there is a danger associated with wealth. Let's look back at that verse, verse 17. Paul says, command those who are rich. Let's stop right there for a minute. Now, let me be real honest with you. I can't imagine, it could be possible, but I can't imagine that there's anyone reading or hearing those words right now who feels like they should stop and say, wait a minute, I'm out. Paul said, command those who are rich, I'm out. That's not me. Whatever Paul has to say next has no relevance to my life because I am not rich. Those words are for all of us, friends. I mean, obviously, I don't know anything about your life with regard to your income or your wealth or what God has entrusted to you any more than you know that about my life. But I can tell you for a fact that these words are for all of us. Let me remind you of something that I have told you repeatedly over the years whenever we set aside this time in November to talk very honestly and openly about money. From a global perspective, all of us are rich. And it's not wrong to look at this from a global perspective because literally, if you look back at verse 17, what Paul says is, command those who are rich in this present world. All of us who are here, from that perspective, are wealthy. Let me put it in practical terms. If you have a car, if you can change your clothes a few times in the course of a week, if you have some amount of money in your wallet or the bank, and it doesn't have to be a lot, from a global perspective, you are wealthy. You're, are you as wealthy as you'd like to be? Probably not. I was just wondering if anybody would respond to that. Are you as wealthy as, we, as you'd like to be? Probably not, but you're still wealthy. According to a 2016 World Bank study, the average per capita income worldwide was $10,298. And listen, that, like every other number in a survey, is skewed because there are many, many people in the world today who live on far less than that amount, far less than a little over $10,000 a year. So none of us should think that Paul's words 
are not written to us here in verse 17. Let's start again. Paul says, command those who are rich, that's all of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who provides us with everything, who richly provides us for everything, for our enjoyment. In those verses, or in that verse rather, Paul gives us two dangers associated with wealth. You ought to write these down. This is a part of our study of this passage. The first one is this. The first danger is associating our worth with our wealth. That's the first danger, associating our worth with our wealth. Paul says in the very beginning of verse 17, command those who are rich, everyone say, that's me. That's me. (laughs) That wasn't very strong. (laughs) It's hard to say. I know. I know, but that's you. And that's me. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Let's focus on that word arrogant for a moment. In the original language of the New Testament, that's a Greek word. That's a compound word that is so long, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But I will tell you that literally translated, it means to have a lofty or exalted opinion of yourself. Now, why would someone who had wealth, someone who was rich in this present world, be arrogant or have a lofty or high opinion of themselves? Because wealth and pride go hand in hand. They go together. And it's easy to let your wealth cause you to think that you're better than someone who has less. Or it's easy to let you, or for for you to think that because you have wealth, that God somehow values you more than someone who has less. But that's never the case. Look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2. The proverb writer says, Rich and poor have this in common the Lord is the maker of them all. That's what the rich and the poor have in common. That we all made by God. We're all children of God. How about Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 22 and 23? In that passage we read, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, the strong man boast of his strength. Note this. Or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. Let me tell you, the only thing God cares about when it comes to our level of wealth is how we handle that wealth, how we handle it. So in God's eyes, the amount of our wealth has nothing to do with our worth. All I had to do, friends, if I think about this on the most practical level, all I had to do was travel to India one time. I've been there multiple times, but all I had to do was travel to India one time to see that God does not see our worth based on our wealth. Because every time I go to India, I meet people who have nothing, absolutely nothing. And yet they are the most saintly, godly, deeply, fervently committed believers I have ever met in my life. Oftentimes people who have been persecuted and experienced loss in horrific ways and yet cling to their faith. It's amazing God does not see our worth based on our wealth. The second danger associated with wealth that we see in verse 17 is the danger of putting our hope in our wealth. If we go back to 1 Timothy 16, Paul says, command those who are rich, that's all of us, in this present world not to be arrogant. There's the first warning. Don't associate your worth with your wealth. And then he goes on to say, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here's a great quote I read while preparing this message. 
Wealth is as dangerous as a mirage in the desert. In the same way that the sun can produce the deadly illusion of water in the midst of a desert, so wealth can appear to be ready to satisfy all our needs independent of God. But that's just a lie. Look at these words on the screen from Proverbs 11 and verse 28. Again, the proverb writer says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. One of the most foolish things that you or me or anyone can do is focus all of our time and all of our attention on gaining more and more wealth because we think that wealth will provide us with all the security we'll ever need. Now, I want you to pay attention to what I said. I didn't say it was wrong to pursue wealth. I don't believe that for a second. I said it was foolish to focus all your time and attention on gaining more and more wealth because you somehow think wealth will provide you with all the security you need. It won't. It won't. Because here's the thing about wealth in this sinful, fallen, temporal world that we live in. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. How many of you know that's true? The proverb writer knew it was true. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Why? He goes on to say, Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And the world is full of people who can give testimony to the truthfulness of those words. We don't find our worth in wealth, and we don't put our hope in wealth. Instead, we find our worth in God, and we put our hope in God, who is the owner of all things, who, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Or in other words, what that means is God provides us with everything we need to enjoy life. Have you found that to be true in your life? I can stand up here and say that I have not always had as much wealth as I thought I needed to have in my life, but I have always had enough wealth to enjoy my life. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who could say that. Because wealth is not the foundation for happiness. It's not the foundation for enjoyment or joy or meaning or purpose or anything like that. And so, what Paul is telling us right off the bat in this study of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, what he's telling us in verse 17 is that, that there is a danger associated with wealth. And so we've got to be wary. We've got to be wise and prudent and careful. But then he goes on to tell us the second truth about wealth. And now we're going to shift from verse 17 to verse 18. Write down, if you like to take notes, somewhere next to number two. There is a responsibility associated with wealth. There's not just a danger associated with wealth, according to Paul. And remember, Paul's writing what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is not just saying through the pen of the Apostle Paul that there is a danger associated with wealth. He's also saying that there is a responsibility associated with wealth. And we see that. In verse 18, and note that verse 17 and verse 18 both began with the word command. Do you get a sense of the seriousness of Paul in his writing? Command. In verse 18, he says, command them. Who's them? Those who are rich, you and me, even if we don't believe it, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's what he says. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Let's just cut to the chase when it comes to this truth about the responsibility associated with wealth. The responsibility of every believer. If you're a Christian, this is true for you. The responsibility of every believer is to use at least a portion of their resources 
to meet the needs of others. And Paul, as he writes this text, is so laser-focused on that responsibility that he says it two different times in two different ways in verse 18 alone. Look back. First, he says that we are to do good, but that wasn't enough. And so he says, and to be rich in good deeds. And then he says we are to be generous, but that's not enough. And so he adds, and willing to share. He's hammering this truth home. Why do you think it is that Paul repeats himself about this responsibility when it comes to our wealth there in verse 18? I think the answer is simple. We don't overthink it. I think he's repeating himself because he knows how difficult it is for some people to be willing to be generous. He knows that sometimes that responsibility associated with wealth, using at least a portion of it to meet the needs of others, is a difficult thing for some people to wrap their minds around, for some people to wrap their hearts around. But there is a responsibility associated with wealth that God entrusts to us. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 about the rich fool? Uh, I tell you, do this with me. Hold your place there in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I got my Bible marked at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let me hear your pages turning to the left, if you would. You don't have to turn there, but I would love to hear your pages turning to the left, all the way back to Luke chapter 12, where we read this parable of the rich fool that begins in verse 13 and goes down to verse 21. You, you follow along as I read it. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is in a normal day for Jesus, probably surrounded by a lot of people, and he's doing some teaching, and somebody says, hey, I got a special request. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, get the idea that he's focused on himself. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, that's the parable. But this section of Scripture doesn't end until Jesus gives his final commentary on that parable in verse 21 when he says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And in my Bible, I have the two words stores up circled there in verse 21, and I have an arrow to the right, and next to the arrow, I have the word treasures written down. Because in the original language of the New Testament, my, those two English words in my NIV Bible come from one single word in the Greek language that literally translated means treasures. And so what Jesus is saying is this is how it will be with anyone who treasures things for himself. Who treasures, whose heart is all about his wealth, his possession, whatever his wealth looks like for himself, but is not rich toward God. So here's the obvious question. What do you think this man's problem was? What was the rich man's problem in the story? Was his problem that he was rich? No. 
It wasn't that he was rich. I mean, he was rich when the story began, and then he got richer as the result of an incredible, unexpected crop. He'd already been blessed with wealth, and now more wealth was being poured into his lap. It wasn't, the problem wasn't that he was rich. The problem was that he was not rich toward God, that he never for a single second thought about the possibility of using any of what God had entrusted to him in a way that would bring a blessing into anyone else's life. He was all about himself. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger barns to store all my wealth. And I will say to myself, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Listen, the Bible never teaches it's wrong to be rich. Don't let anyone ever tell you that because the Bible never teaches that. What the Bible does is it gives us warnings that we need to heed associated with wealth, warnings related to being rich, but it never says it's wrong to be rich. What kind of warnings? Well, we already saw two of them. In, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We already saw two of them in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The first warning was don't make the mistake of associating your worth with your wealth. And the second one was don't make the mistake of putting all your hope in your wealth like it's going to be all that you need for a satisfying, meaningful, and stable life. But beyond that, there's other warnings in the Scriptures related to wealth. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, our, our text is verses 17 through 19. If you scroll up from verse 17, you get to verse 10, and you find the most misquoted verse in all the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's a misquoted verse because people like to say that money is the root of all evil, but that's not what Paul says. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he adds, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Listen, friends, I can't imagine. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way. I can't even imagine a greater danger associated with wealth or money than the danger of allowing the way we feel about wealth or money to cause us to wander from the faith. Because you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying literally to cause you to turn your back on God. That, you, that the love of money and the pursuit of that money that you love is so great that it would literally cause a person to turn their back on God, And yet that's what Paul says can happen when we love money to the point of pursuing it in our lives above everything else. And that's not all because he goes on to say that that love of money can also cause people to pierce themselves with many griefs. If you look that up in the original language of the New Testament, basically what he's saying is that the love of money and the pursuit of money, the unbalanced love of money and the unbalanced pursuit of money can leave someone living a life of consuming grief, consuming grief. That's what he's describing. And let me just make that real by telling you this. I can't tell you the number of times over the past 40 plus years of my life that I have sat with a man, and I'm not picking on men tonight, I'm just telling you the way the story unfolds, that I have sat with a man who in his brokenness wept and wept bitterly over the loss of his marriage and the loss of his family because the clear first priority of his life was the pursuit of wealth. And in the end, he discovered he lost everything that was meaningful for something that was just necessary. 
And now he was left with a life of consuming grief. Here's another warning the Bible gives us related to wealth or money, the pursuit of wealth or money. Look at these words from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. These were Jesus' words, and I'm sure they're familiar to many of you. They come in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, You cannot serve both God and money. This is the danger of loving money, being so consumed with money that you serve money. Money is your first priority. Money becomes like a God to you. I pointed this out before, but have you ever noticed in your Bible at least this is the way it is in my Bible, that the word money there is capitalized? Be easy to read that verse over and over again and not notice that the word money was capitalized. Do you think that's an accident in our all Scripture is God-breathed Bibles that we open up together? That's not an accident. The reason why the word money is capitalized is because money, we need to see it. This is one of the dangers of money that we have to see and understand. Money is nothing less than a rival God it's not just some impersonal medium of exchange. Money is godlike in that it, it's a power that seeks to dominate our lives, take control of our lives, be the number one thing in our lives. Well, I could go on because there are more warnings, but for the sake of time, I'll stop right there. The Bible makes it clear that there is a responsibility associated with wealth. The Bible does not say or teach in any way, shape, or form that it's wrong to be wealthy. It's wrong to be rich. It gives us warnings that we need to heed with regard to wealth and with regard to money. But it doesn't teach that it's wrong to be wealthy, but it does teach us that there is a responsibility when it comes to money, a responsibility associated with the wealth. First, the responsibility is to handle it in a way that honors God. We talk about that every single year. That's why I bring out these four things uh, and talk to you about them every year. These are what I call the four financial pillars of money management um, in uh, the book of Proverbs. Keep track, plan ahead, save consistently, give habitually. And I tell you every year, if you follow this four-step plan when it comes to handling whatever amount of money God entrusts to you, you're going to experience financial peace and financial freedom in your life. So we need to handle money in a way that honors God. That's one responsibility. But the other responsibility is that we need to make sure that we use at least some portion, and that's what we have to decide for ourselves, what that portion looks like, some portion of what God entrusts to us to meet the needs of others, to bless the lives of others. That can be a spiritual blessing and we certainly hope that's happened. that happens as a ministry grows and a ministry spreads and a ministry reaches more people with the gospel, but it can also be physical needs. It can also be helping someone get surgery so that they can be set free from their home because their eyesight does not allow them to drive. And on and on and on. There's a responsibility associated with wealth. And then that brings us to the third and the final thing that I want you to see from this passage. Uh, number one, there is a danger associated with wealth. Number two, there's a responsibility associated with wealth. And the third one is this, write it down. There is an opportunity associated with wealth. There's an opportunity. It's in verse 19 where we see that, but let's just, since it's a brief passage, let's just read verses 17, 18, and 19 together. Let's flow right into it. One more time, Paul said, command those who are rich, that's you and me, in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. We don't get our worth from our wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. We don't put our hope in wealth, but in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, gives us all we need to enjoy life. 
Command them to do good. This is the responsibility, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and, to, and willing to share. And then we get to verse 19. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so Paul captures the opportunity that's associated with wealth, the way we handle wealth in verse 19. Again, in this way, they will hold up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What Paul writes here, friends, is so simple. He's telling us that when we use the resources that God entrusts to us to meet the needs of others, we are literally amassing a treasure in heaven. That's the way it reads in the original language of the New Testament, stores up treasure. It says literally we are amassing a treasure in heaven. And we need to make the amassing of a treasure in heaven a priority in our lives with regard to the way we handle the money God entrusts to us. And when we do that, we demonstrate the truth that we have taken hold of the life that is truly life. What do you think Paul means when he says that? Well, what he means is when we demonstrate our understanding of the opportunity associated with wealth and we give, we're generous in some capacity to help others, to bless others, to meet the needs of others, then what we're demonstrating by that act is that we understand that our love and our heart is not to be focused on this sinful, broken, temporary world. Our love, our hearts are focused on eternity beyond what's seen to what's unseen because as we talked about last week, what's seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This isn't some opportunity to buy your way into heaven because that's not possible. This is simply the opportunity to demonstrate that your faith is real, that it's genuine. Your desire to follow Jesus is genuine by focusing not on the temporary things of this world, but on eternity. In a 2016 blog post called Where's Your Heart, a man named Randy Alcorn wrote, suppose you buy shares of General Motors. What happens? You suddenly develop interest in General Motors. You check the financial pages. You see a magazine article about GM and read every word, even though a month ago you would have passed right over it. Suppose you're given giving to help African children with AIDS. When you see an article on the subject, you're hooked. If you're sending money to plant churches in India and an earthquake hits India, you watch the news and fervently pray. And then he asked this question. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your money. He adds maybe most of your money from temporal things to eternal things. Put your resources, your assets, your money and possessions, your time and talents and energies into the things of God and watch what happens. As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads, hearts follow. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You should have received one of these A Generous Life commitment cards when you walked in uh, to the service this weekend. Uh, we do this every year when we set aside some time in November to talk very uh, unapologetically about money from a practical standpoint and from a generosity standpoint. 
Um, if you're joining us online uh, this weekend, you can access uh, a digital version of this commitment card uh, by clicking on the link that was provided by your service host in the chat. Every year we ask people to make a generosity commitment for the coming year. And uh, if you look at the cards, you can see there are three different options. The, the card says, because the Bible teaches us this important principle, what we receive in life is in direct proportion to what we give. Proverbs 11.25 says, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And because the Bible teaches us that the simplest way to live a generous life is to handle whatever amount of money God entrusts you with a plan that includes generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. There's our plan, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. rather. Because of those things, I commit, and then you have three options, to begin to give faithfully and consistently with the tithe as my generosity goal, to begin or continue to tithe as my measurement of generosity, or to begin or continue to give over and above the tithe as my measurement of generosity. And there's a place for you to sign it and to date it in the bottom right corner of the card. We use the uh, measurement of a tithe every year when we spend this time talking about money. The word tithe is a, a word in the Hebrew of the Old Testament that literally means a tenth part, and so you're talking about giving a tenth of what God has entrusted you back to God. That's, that's using a portion of what God has entrusted to meet the needs of others, to bless others, to reach others, to help others. Um, I didn't put this on the PowerPoint, so it's not going to come up on the screen, uh, but I, I have shared this before, and I just tell you that I, I personally, from a personal believer standpoint, I believe in the tithe for several different reasons. I believe that that 10% number that is found in the Old Testament is an eternal principle. It's a great place to start. I believe in the tithe because the tithe helps us to give God first place in our finances. I mean, how, how much better off would most of our lives be if we gave God the first part of everything meaningful in our lives? If we gave God the first day of the week and we worshiped him, regardless of anything else that might be going on around us every week, if we gave God the first part of our day and we spent time talking to him, reading from his word, meditating on the truth of his word, a quiet time, if we had the spiritual discipline of giving him the first part of every week, and if we gave him the first part of everything that he gives to us, if we gave a, a, the first part of it back to him to use to meet the needs and bless the lives of other people, how much better off would our lives be? I believe in the tithe because it's an, it's an antidote to greed. If, if when, when money comes into my life, my first commitment is to give a portion of it away, then that helps me to avoid the greed that Jesus talked about in that Luke chapter 12 parable we talked about a little earlier ago, early, or a little while ago, rather. I believe in the tithe because it keeps your giving proportional. You know, the truth is, in a church like ours, we have a lot of people, and we have some people who make a little and some people who make a lot, and we've got everything in between. But when it comes to the tithe, we're not talking about everybody giving the same amount, but we're talking about everybody making the same commitment. Not equal amounts, but equal commitment. And I believe in the tithe because it strengthens our faith, and I believe in the tithe because it's a great place to start when it comes to our giving. And so the that's the measurement that we encourage here at the church. I want you to be clear about that. But when you make a commitment to give at least a portion of what God has given to you back to him to minister to and bless and serve and help the lives of others, you're supporting a ministry that makes an impact not just here in Greenwood, but across Indianapolis through our impact campuses. You're, you're making an impact in four different communities and neighborhoods across the city of Indianapolis, the greater Indianapolis area. But it's not just local. You're making a global impact too in India and Poland and Mexico and Egypt and ultimately the entire world. 
I don't have time to talk about all of our ministry partners, but one ministry partner we have, TCM International, trains men and women to plant churches across the globe. Another global partner, Pioneer Bible Translators, they translate the scriptures into the language of every known unreached people group in the world. And as I've told you before, we are right now in the process as a church fully funding the translation of the scriptures into the language, language of the single largest unreached people group in the world. They live in China, in a remote part of China. And because of the government of China, Pioneer Bible Translators asks us not to say the name of the people or print it anywhere just for safety reasons. So you're making an impact when you respond to this card. If you're willing to do that this weekend, you can drop your card in a gray basket that's outside the worship center. I was told that they're going to be on the different bookshelves out there. If that's not the case, that's not my fault. And whoever told me that, they won't have a job on Monday. (laughs) If not, you just take this home and you pray about it. You pray together about it. Here's my card. I've already filled it out. My wife and I already made the decision. Uh, and I, not to say this to boast, but to be an example, we check that third box every year that we're going to continue to give over and above the tithe as our measurement of generosity. And I say that simply because I would never ask you to do anything when it comes to money that I'm not willing to do myself. And so, where's your heart? That's the question we all ask ourselves this weekend. Where's my heart? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for our time to study tonight. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how practical and straightforward and honest it is. Thank you for how life-giving it is, how enriching and freeing it is. And help us to have the courage to obey your word, to respond with faithfulness, and obedience. And I thank you so much for the generous people in this church. And I pray that generosity, living a generous life, would be the goal of all of us. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing one final song.